Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Yes, good afternoon, friends. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Tuesday afternoon. And it appears to be the end of an era in Alberta politics. It was 2014. Uh, when the uh, then NDP leader Brian Mason announced he was uh, stepping down, a party that was uh, really just a caucus of four at the time, Rachel Notley prevailed in the subsequent leadership election and led the party now for almost 10 years. That tenure is set to come to an end. Rachel Notley just moments away here from a press conference while she will formally announce her resignation as NDP leader. Now, apparently she met with the NDP caucus this morning, let them know what her intentions were. Uh, now shortly here, she'll let the rest of the province know where she goes from here in terms of the timeline of her stepping down, the leadership race that follows, and obviously questions about her own future. Is there a future in politics, in Alberta, federal politics, or maybe something else outside of politics altogether? Uh, but certainly, look, in, in Alberta politics, this past 10 years feels like it's been a lifetime in Alberta politics. You think about all the change, all the upheaval. Uh, so an interesting consistent through it all was Rachel Notley as the leader of the NDP. Of course, she went on to become premier in 2015 in a historic victory, ending a decades-long PC dynasty and attempted to be the first former premier to be re-elected as premier. In the recent uh, Alberta election, uh, the party came up short, but was still the largest opposition ever elected in Alberta's history. Uh, so certainly maybe a political career that ends on some disappointment, uh, but one in which much was achieved. And so Rachel Notley has very much left a mark on Alberta politics, was a very big figure in Alberta politics, and leaves some big shoes to be filled by her successor. Now, it seems pretty clear that, uh, you know, there, there's been an anticipation that this announcement was coming, that Rachel Notley was not likely to lead the party into the next election. And we're starting to see some movements by some possible successors anticipating the next phase here, another uh, leadership race 10 years after the race that uh, put Rachel Notley at the helm of the party. So that's uh, the big news today in Alberta politics. NDP leader Rachel Notley, soon to be now former NDP leader Rachel Notley. So we're going to go live to that press conference uh, in just mere moments here. We'll hear from Rachel Notley why she made the decision, where she goes from here, the state the, she leaves the party in. Uh, after, of course, forming government, losing government, coming up short uh, in the recent election. We will hear later on today as well from uh, one of her former colleagues, former Cabinet Minister Darren Billis. We'll get some thoughts on the state of the, uh, I guess you could call it the progressive movement in Alberta. I think a big part of Rachel Notley's legacy is that the NDP, which for a long time was really just kind of a smaller third party in Alberta politics, has become the big tent on the left in Alberta. It's really very much a two-party system. So let's now go live to Rachel Notley and uh, hear the announcement uh, for ourselves here. Good morning, everyone. We're gathered today on the traditional territory of Treaty 6, and I also would like to acknowledge the Métis people of Alberta who share a very deep connection to this land. Thank you all 
for coming out today. I know that our media notice was, you know, a little vague, uh, but I'm very excited that uh, you've come out all, nonetheless to hear me talk about my nine-point plan to have you all visit albertasfuture.ca. <laughs> okay, fair to say that uh, there is also another issue that uh, I'd like to address through all of you to Albertans today. There's been a great deal of speculation since the election as to my future. While politics to the south of us would suggest I have at least 20 years left in my political career, I think the advisability of that's probably a bit debatable. More to the point, having considered what I believe to be the best interests of our party, our caucus, as well as my own preferences, I'm here today to announce that I will not be leading Alberta's NDP into the next election. I have informed both the senior officers of Alberta's NDP, as well as my caucus and staff, that upon the selection of a new leader, I will be stepping down from that role. This October will be 10 years since I was first given the honour of leading our party. At the time, we were the fourth party in the legislature with a massive caucus consisting of four MLAs. Less than seven months later, we had a caucus of 54 MLAs and Alberta's first NDP government. While many of those folks, and indeed myself included, never expected uh, to, uh, to be uh, elected, let alone finding themselves in a government cabinet, we all scrambled quickly to live up to the immense privilege and responsibility the people of Alberta bestowed upon us. Now, we didn't get everything right. But we governed with integrity, an ambitious agenda, and an earnest desire to make life better for Albertans. And while this isn't the place to go down into a super deep policy rabbit hole, I will highlight just a few of the things that make me proud about my time as Premier. We approved and built the Calgary Cancer Centre, a decision that was at least a decade overdue. We stood up for the rights of working people, improving their access to unions, increasing their time off, protecting their safety in the workplace, and we were the first jurisdiction in North America to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, making a real difference in the life of Alberta's working poor and tens of thousands of young people and their families. We secured Alberta's first pipeline to Tidewater in over 50 years, ensuring that the return to Albertans for the sale of the resources that we all own is permanently increased. We eliminated coal-fired electricity in Alberta, thereby increasing the health of countless citizens and at the same time kick-starting our renewable energy industry to be the fastest growing on the continent, all while significantly reducing our emissions in one fell swoop. And finally, in the midst of a recession caused by the international collapse in the price of oil, and seriously folks, I did not cause that, we cut child poverty in half. But as I said, we didn't get it all right, and Albertans told us so in April of 2019. And I thought about leaving then, and there are many reasons that I did not. But the biggest is probably this. Too many people were declaring that the Alberta NDP was done, and more importantly, that Alberta was destined to revert back to being a one-party conservative state. And I knew that wasn't true. 
and I also knew that it would be awful for Albertans if they came to believe that it was. So four years later, last spring, we came so close to earning the right to lead Alberta again. We received the highest percentage of the vote that the Alberta NDP ever has. We won all of Edmonton. We won the majority of seats in Calgary. We increased our vote throughout the province, and we elected the largest official opposition in the history of this province. An opposition that is very, very ready, by the way, to take over the reins of government. But it wasn't enough, and that's why it's now time for me to leave. But if there is any one accomplishment that I can leave behind me, it's that we are not a one-party province where Albertans have no real choice about how their province is to be run. Albertans do not ever have to feel that elections and their opinions do not matter. It was that way when I started. It's not that way anymore. Not only do I leave Albertans with that electoral choice, I also am so proud to leave them with a caucus that is filled with expert, dedicated, diverse people supported by the hardest working and most skilled political staff in the country. Our NDP, NDP team will not stop fighting to make life better for all Albertans. We will fight to protect and improve our health care to stand up for our children's right to a world-class education, to fix the housing crisis, to keep Albertans CPP safe, and to confront the reality of climate change. Now, roughly 10 years ago today, I started talking to my kids about how they'd feel if I decided to run for the leadership of Alberta's NDP. Roughly 15 years ago today, 12 years today, 10 years ago today, I listened to my husband tell me that he thought I should run for the leadership of Alberta's NDP. In both cases, my family got quite a bit more than they'd bargained for. It's been a crazy ride, but I couldn't have done it without them. It was... I was raised by both my, my father and my mother to believe that public service is, is it's something that you should strive for throughout your life. I wish they could have been here to see some of what we've all been able to accomplish together. Either way, it wouldn't have happened for me without the examples that they both set, demonstrating daily the value of hard work, compassion for neighbors, the duty of compassion for neighbors, and the importance of social democratic convictions. And to all the volunteers, the activists, the donors, the canvassers, the past and current and future in Alberta's NDP, thank you. There would be no success without you. You are the strength and the foundation of our movement. And I will be forever humbled by your selfless dedication to our province. Short of having, raising, and of course, regularly debating with my family, the opportunity to serve this party and this province has been the honour of my life. Over the last decade, Albertans have given me a tremendous opportunity to serve in this role, and I'm so grateful. 
The people of our province are bold, friendly, open, caring, and adventurous. I've learned so much from them. The land we share is the most beautiful and also sometimes the coldest place on earth. I also want to thank the people of Edmonton Strathcona who have supported me since 2008. We all live in and part of a fabulous community and I'm so proud to call it home. Thank you to all the Albertans I've met along the way. Those who advised me, who supported me, who disagreed with me, and yes, even campaigned against me. We all love this province. I love this province. And I know that our best days are still ahead of us. Thank you, and I'm happy to take, I don't know, one or two questions. So you've been saying for a long time that this is, you know, you've been considering your future. When did you make this decision, and what was the deciding factor for you? Well, I think it makes sense uh, for any leader after an election to take stock and make a decision about what's best for them and also the party that they lead, depending on the outcome of an election. And so I said that I would do that after the election um, uh, at the end of May. And I spent some time giving that genuine thought over the course of the summer. I can't say exactly when it was that I decided, but I will say it wasn't yesterday. Uh, there's no question that part of what drove my decisions around timing was the desire to to lead our caucus through uh, their first session to to ensure that there was stability as uh, 19 of of the most credible and and talented new MLAs that this legislature has ever seen um, had a chance to get their feet wet and and get used to the process. So um, that's why uh, we've gone through that process now and and that's why I'm making the the announcement now. Of course this is going to spark a a leadership race, um, and um, those are double-edged swords. They can generate a lot of interest in the party, uh, but they can also produce divisiveness. So what advice would you have for people who are vying to replace you? Well, I, I would say to them that this, uh, that the leadership race that is uh, to follow um, is a tremendous opportunity to showcase uh, the strength uh, of, of our party, uh, the strength of our convictions, and the talent of our, of our caucus, as well as all those who, who call themselves members of the party. Um, you know, healthy debate is fine. It's good. It's renewing. And, and it's, it's good for the party. Uh, the key is, uh, what I would say to everybody, is, is, is to respect uh, the membership and, and to talk about the forward offer uh, to the people of this province. Hi, Brianna Kirsten-Smith with Global Edmonton. Um, you spoke a little bit about the diversity of caucus. I wonder if you can step back and sort of recognize at this point your leadership in, in creating that, and also if you can take us inside that room when you did announce and, and what the reaction was from them. Well, I'm, I'm of course very proud uh, to have such a diverse caucus. We were very proud to run, um, you know, not only a, a gender balanced uh, slate, and and of course to to uh, secure many firsts in Alberta electoral history, even in the last election, um, in terms of uh, the number of new Canadians, uh, the the number of of, of different. Uh, um, um, Ethnic and multicultural groups who are who are represented in our caucus who had never been elected to the legislature before, and that was something that we were very very intentional about, because to me the folks who are elected who who sit in that building there on behalf of all Albertans need to reflect 
the people that they represent if we're going to do a good job for folks. And so I was very proud about that. Um, uh, today we had a, a very brief meeting, um, and uh, you know I will say I probably didn't hold it together quite as well as I just did this time um, because we have a, an amazing team. But um, you know uh, I think folks uh, did know that that it was coming, even if they maybe didn't know it was coming today. I am surprised by how close we got to this announcement without everybody knowing about it. That was. Frankly, the, one of the biggest political feats I've seen in the last decade. But anyway, <laughs> uh, obviously early with this announcement today. But can you speak a little bit to what you hope your legacy is and how you think maybe, especially your dad, would have reacted to uh, your time and as the longest-serving MLA in Alberta? Well, I mean, there, there truly are uh, a lot of policy issues, most of which, of course, uh, happened during our time in government, but even a, a few of which happened uh, in our time as opposition. Um, that I'm proud of, but but as I've said, probably the the singular most important issue from which all others flow is the fact that Alberta is not a one-party province uh, or a two-party provinces with two different shades of conservative. Uh, we are now a province. We're progressive, um, uh, forward-looking, um, uh, diverse. Albertans can can uh, see uh, and pursue their political aspirations and their their public policy goals, not with a view to having other people just hear them, but with a view to winning government and seeing those policies uh, turned into real action by their government. And that's not something we've seen in this uh, province for almost a century. And so I'm very proud that that's the position that we're in, and I am very confident that that is the position that will continue because, as I've said, um, our party's never been stronger than we are right now. Hi, it's Lisa Johnson from the Edmonton Journal. Uh, thanks for taking our questions. I'm, I'm not going to ask you for an endorsement of a new leader because I suspect <laughs> you're going to stay clear of that. But I want to ask generally what direction you think the party should go in. You've been the face of this party uh, for a long time. You've steered it. Uh, some have said in the last election a little bit closer to center. You, you uh, gained a lot of ground in Calgary, obviously not enough to win the election, but you gained ground, some have said, by steering a little to the center. Some members of your party would probably argue that it needs to be more progressive and push more to the left. What direction do you want to see the NDP going in? Well, I, I would say that in, in many respects, the, the 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 frame that many people often try to impose on this, you know, are we going left? Are we going center? You know, where, where are we there? Is maybe not the the best way to uh, to look at it. To me, it's about. Are we listening to all Albertans? Are we representing the the hopes and aspirations of of, of the greatest number of Albertans? Are we doing it in a way that that um, that is um, uh, you know respectful to to our values? And and so uh, in terms of you know next steps for the party, this is why this leadership race will be very exciting. And at the end of the day, uh, the membership will be who makes the decision. And, and I respect that. So uh, I, I, I feel that uh, I look forward to the, the healthy conversations that I know are going to come. Thanks. Um, I also wanted to ask you about a more detailed question. We're going to see a leadership rate. We haven't seen any details or decisions from the party yet. How would you like to see that leadership race play out? What kind of length do you want it? What is ideal to you to see a, a fair race? What kind of rules should be imposed in terms of who can purchase a membership and vote in that race? 
today, for example, uh, what kind of parameters do you want to see so that that race is fair and doesn't get sabotaged by perhaps somebody from outside of the party? <laughs> so, uh, you know, listen, this this is a matter that will be uh, robustly discovered or discussed uh, by our provincial council. They are who have the authority uh, to make those decisions. And, and so um, it really does come to the party. Uh, the party uh, executive and then the provincial council to make decisions around many of the matters that you've just identified. I think obviously uh, what everybody will want to see is that we have a transparent process uh, that uh, has the trust and integrity of uh, the the people who are involved in it. Um, But ultimately the way you secure that is you, you respect the process which is that provincial council will make that decision. Hi, Rachel. It's Michelle Belfontaine from CBC. Um, you don't certainly don't control the timing of the leadership race. Of course, the party does. What is your intention when, once a new leader is chosen? Do you tend to stay on as MLA until the end of your term? Um, I have no uh, current plans to step down. Uh, but what I will say is, is right now what's directly in front of me is uh, the task of leading the caucus through the next session of the legislature and then doing everything I can to support uh, the new leader uh, when he or she is, is chosen or when they are chosen. And, and so um, that's my focus right now. Uh, the thing about politics is that the uh, daily planning or the planning cycle, the life planning cycle is about seven days long. Uh, so uh, I feel like that, that, that's where I'm at now. I've actually extended it past that seven days, so yay me. So basically you're saying you haven't made a decision yet? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. okay. And I'm also curious, I mean, obviously you, you could talk to your family about uh, your decision. Did you happen to talk to any of your predecessors in the role as, as NDP leader, like Brian Mason or Raj Panu, about going forward? Well, you know, I think I, I spoke with a, a range of folks um, uh, about sort of next steps and, uh, and, and uh, you know, over the course of some time. Uh, I, no one in particular that I, that I would identify, but uh, certainly I've talked to people who have been in the party for a very long time and people who have, have been in the party uh, for a short time and, and, you know, friends, family, obviously, uh, and, and caucus members and all the things. And so... Um, but honestly, at the end of the day, it was a decision that, that I made uh, myself. It's, it's one of those th- things that ultimately you decide in a pretty quiet place. So an end of an era in Alberta politics, Rachel Notley, former premier of Alberta, currently official opposition leader, uh, will be stepping down as leader of the NDP. Uh, So later this year, for the first time since 2014, uh, the NDP will have a different leader and Alberta will have a new opposition leader. And that will certainly set the stage uh, for what is anticipated to be a pretty competitive uh, election, uh, we assume, in 2027. Uh, So she's had a considerable impact in Alberta politics, taking over a party that had four seats in the Alberta legislature, becoming premier of the province. Now, in fairness, losing two elections uh, back-to-back in 2019 and 2023, uh, but also uh, in 2023, uh, leading uh, the party uh, to its best finish ever and, um, you know, leading uh, the largest opposition that Alberta's legislature has uh, ever seen. Different politics in 2024, for sure, uh, than, than in 2014.
So joining us to talk more about the decision, about her legacy, about where Rachel Notley and the NDP go from here, someone who has uh, seen all of this uh, up close and personal, certainly from the inside, spent 12 or 10 years, rather, from 2012 to 2022 as an MLA himself, serves, uh, served as a cabinet minister. Uh, during the NDP government, Darren Billis uh, on the line with us now, currently a vice president, senior vice president with Council Public Affairs. Darren, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I think we kind of saw this coming, but I mean, were you surprised at all? What were your thoughts on that, first of all? Um, no, I wasn't surprised. And I mean, partly because I'm still quite plugged in uh, to the party and so mm-hmm. knew that uh, that we were we were moving in this path. Um, I think, um, you know, the timing is a little earlier than I would have anticipated. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think that there are definitely uh, candidates that want to run for leadership who have been uh, busy as of late, from what I'm hearing, uh, yeah. organizing their campaigns. And I think, you know, for Rachel, it just made sense instead of, you know, keeping this quiet or trying to keep it quiet uh, for a longer period of time of, of you know, announcing uh, the leadership race or her stepping down and triggering the leadership race. I mean, 10 years as leader, and, and that's certainly a long time. So do, do you can, and I know she was asked about this today, but do you see the situation now as much different than 2019 and her decision to stay on following that election? Well, I think it's different in the sense that, sure, I mean, in, in 2019, uh, going into that election, you Oh, sorry, you mean going in? Well, following the election, right? So so the NDP right. loses in 2019. Yeah. She stays on. The NDP loses in 2023. You know, she decides it's time for her to go. But but different circumstances, you would say. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I would. And, and I think part of it was she wanted another uh, chance to form governments again in 2023 and so wanted to stay on as leader and, and, and take on Daniel Smith, um, which, mm-hmm. uh, again, you know, Rachel highlighted the um, – you know, the accomplishments of the party, you know, forming the largest opposition, et cetera. Although, you know, this game uh, of politics, you know, you're running not to be in second place. You're running to form government. And uh, and to your point, Rob, two elections, uh, she couldn't win it back. And so uh, has decided that it's time to pass the torch. Some big shoes to fill, though. And I mean, you know, I think she, you know, she gets a lot of the credit for taking the party to the heights that it reached, um, you know, and, and nothing against the other two leadership candidates in, in 2014. But it's hard to see that, you know, the party would have reached such heights that had things gone a different way. So uh, in your view, how much credit does she get for taking the party into government, taking the party to, you know, where it's at now? I think. I think Rachel deserves most of the credit. Um, you know, I mean, it was it was really her and her brand that, that brought the NDP uh, mainstream, that Albertans felt that they could vote NDP. It was no longer a, uh, a fringe party. Uh, you know, back in, in 2012, when I was first elected, um, I joined the caucus, which we doubled in size from yeah. two to four. Uh, but we were the fourth party. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the leaders that came before Rachel uh, uh, toiled and worked very hard, but just couldn't break through. And so, you know, that breakthrough, and, and, and I know that there's been lots of, of pundits that have analyzed that 2015 election, and I'll be the first to admit that the Prentice camp made some significant mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but it was also Rachel who ran a really, really tight election race. 
And uh, the party, no doubt about it, credits her uh, for bringing uh, the party to government and uh, and growing the party to to be the largest official opposition in Alberta's history. Yeah, and when when we sort of and we've evolved more or less into a two party system, and so I think you know inevitably that that sort of pulls parties toward the center. Do, do you feel like the NDP is is not only a much bigger tent but a more centrist party now than it was a decade ago? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, Rob. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I refer to myself as, as quite a, a centrist or a, a, a pragmatic um, new Democrat. And so I think, you know, Rachel understood that uh, that to govern, you, 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 you've got to govern from the centre. That's where um, I feel like the majority of Albertans are. Um, and, uh, you know, again, issue by issue, they may be a little more left. On other issues, they may be a little more right. But, uh, but occupying that centre space. And I think Rachel did a really good job. Uh, sticking true to her new Democrat values, but demonstrating that she could govern for you know the majority of Albertans. I made this point earlier, and I don't think it's a coincidence that you know in 2015, when the NDP won, we didn't have a Liberal government in Ottawa. The subsequent two elections, we did. I guess we'll see what happens federally, but that could be in a, a different wild card in 2027. How much of a factor is that in Alberta politics? How much of an albatross did you know Justin Trudeau's unpopularity kind of create for for the party and for Rachel Notley? I think it definitely created some headwinds. And, and you know, frankly, when you look at um, how the, the UCP did a good job of, um, you know, in the same breath, putting in Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau and the alliance and then trying to put that back on the Alberta NDP. Um, you know, I mean, the truth is, and I know most Albertans know this, that the Alberta NDP do not answer to the federal NDP um, at all in any way, shape or form. Uh, but the, the tactic of the UCP to try to tie the two together, um, I think it, it, it created some headwinds for uh, for the NDP in this last election, for sure. I think, you know, coming from that or stemming from that, I know there there's some who have suggested that maybe the Alberta NDP should uh, go a step further then and, and, you know, sever itself from the federal NDP or, or change its name or change its, its branding and image. Do you see any, any merit to, to any of those arguments? What are your thoughts? Yeah, once upon a time, Rob, truth be told, I was advocating uh, around the table to Rachel that we needed to break from the federal NDP. Um, you know, quite frankly, uh, Jagmeet Singh's energy policies are, are, are devastating for Alberta. Uh, we do not share them at all. We are, uh, you know, uh, big supporters of oil and gas and recognizing, you know, the, uh, the opportunities that we have in the province, that we need a government uh, federally and provincially that are going to support our key industries. And energy is a key industry. Um, Rachel felt that we didn't need to break from the federal NDP in order to get that message across. Um, you know, that's a debate that we can have, you know, long into the future. Uh, but, you know, I was asked uh, recently on whether or not the ND should change their name. And I honestly feel that that would be a, a mistake. And the reason is you've got, you know, and I'm happy for us to discuss some of the leadership hopefuls or candidates um, that, uh, that are running to replace Rachel, they're all relatively unknown and, and need to really focus in, uh, you know, the next few months and however long the leadership race is um, to, to get their, their name um, into the news and to get known. And I think if they took on a new name, I look no further than British Columbia, the BC Liberals rebranded recently to BC United. Yeah, that hasn't gone well. <laughs> It, it is not going well. People do not know who they are, and they're polling at the lowest they've polled in, I think, two decades. Mm. So, 
you know, lesson learned, I, I think that they, you know, my opinion, my humble opinion, I'm not one of the decision makers um, around the table, but uh, I would not change the name from NDP. Um, but uh, again, Darren Billis, personally, you know, I've advocated in the past to break from the federal party to, to demonstrate that we don't share their policies. Um, you know, we'll see if any of the leadership uh, candidates you know, make that one of theirs. Yeah, and it was worth noting, too, I mean, just on that point, Rachel Lautley was asked about whether federal politics might be in her future. She said absolutely not. So um, maybe that speaks to some of those those um, disagreements, perhaps. So as we talk about possible successors, and I think everyone sort of assumes Kathleen Ganley is going to be running based on a, a video she posted to, to social media recently. Uh, Rocky Pancholi, Shannon Phillips, David Shepard, some of the other names we've heard. I don't know if the name Darren Billis is in the mix at all, but your thoughts on on the leadership <laughs> landscape here, yeah, I think I think it is going to be a very robust leadership race. Um, you know, I will say at the onset, Rob, I was on a, a different show a little while ago, and they listed all the the names that were being talked about except mine. And I said, "What, what about <laughs> me?" And they said, "Well, yeah, sorry. Hey, are you interested in running for the job?" And I said, "Well, I haven't closed the door on that idea yet. Um, you know, I think." Um, I think that would still be my answer today. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I do think, you know, what's really interesting, and I think your listeners are going to find this fascinating, Rob, this is the first real race in Alberta's, the Alberta NDP's history. So, yes, there was a leadership race in 2014, and I, I know both of the, the other candidates who ran, uh, David Egan and, and Rod Loyola, and no disrespect to them, but that race, it was very clear very early on that Rachel had that name power and star power that the other two was very unlikely that they were going to win. This time around, we've got, you know, five, six, who knows who else is going to throw their hat in the ring. Uh, Lots of speculation. I won't add to that speculation by naming people, but, um, you know, there, there could be, you know, easily a half dozen or more candidates uh, run. And, uh, you know, this is, this is the big time that they're, they're running to be leaders of official opposition and, uh, and also in striking distance of, uh, of forming government in 2027. You know, and back to the question, maybe it concerns, you know, the NDP brand, the NDP history versus being a big tent, right? Because, you know, some of the names we mentioned and yours included, right, there's uh, NDP connections, NDP credentials that go back a long ways. Uh, when we hear names, and, and not to say that there's any, I have any insight on their interests, but I hear, you know, Nehad Nenshi's name being thrown out or Don Iveson's name being thrown out. Uh, you know, if there's figures who don't have that, that long-time connection to the party, per se, but might be you know, sort of, you know, progressives in a broader sense, would there be any issues there, or, or do you think the party's uh, open and welcome to that? Yeah, that's a great question, Rob. I think the, I think the honest truth is that I think the majority of the party, uh, of, of, of party members, would be open to that. Uh, but there will be there will be some there are members that uh, judge uh, people based on the history of how long they've been part of the party, and if you haven't toiled uh, and put in your time, well, you know, should you should you you know are you the right person uh, to lead it into the future? So recognizing where the party came from, its deep roots, um, you know, in uh, in the progressive movement. Um, it would, it would pose interesting. I mean, my hope, and, and I hope that there is, a, a, you know, at least six, if not eight or ten candidates, because it's very, very healthy for the party. It, the debate is healthy, the opportunity to fundraise, to sell memberships, to get people interested, and for that discussion. 
right? And, and, and we heard that Rachel was asked whether or not the future of the party goes further left. Does it stay in the center? Does it move to the right? And I know, I know that Rachel does not like those terms and, and defining the party um, in that way. You know, for me, I, I have no problems with using those terms. And I, I do think that if, you know, the party wants to be a contender against Daniel Smith and the UCP, that it can't um, fly back to the left and, and the far left and, uh, and, and, you know, to take certain policies that, that, you know, are popular amongst its base, but maybe less popular amongst the, the general electorate. And I think what we are going to see is all of these candidates realize that the, um, the real goal is the 2027 general election. And so, you know, I think uh, the, the, the more sophisticated campaigns are going to be gearing their messaging not just toward the party faithful, but really going out trying to sign up new members um, in, all, in all different communities. You know, and I know a number of them have uh, targeted and prioritized the business community. So going after those those former progressive conservative uh, businessmen and women uh, is going to be a top priority for a number of these candidates. It's going to be an interesting few months. Uh, Darren, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Happy to be here. Thanks, Rob. All the best. Take care. That is Darren Billis, uh, current uh, senior vice president with Council Public Affairs, but a former New Democrat MLN, a former cabinet minister uh, during the NDP government. Just over 100 days since the Hamas terror attack of October 7th. And for the more than 200 hostages were taken that day, it's been uh, over 100 days of hell. Some of those hostages have been released and some pretty harrowing accounts uh, of what they and other hostages had to go through. So there's increasing worry about those still in Hamas captivity. There's some indication uh, that Hamas has killed two of those hostages there's still believed to be over 100 hostages being held, uh, but their fate, their status remains unclear. And as more time passes, uh, there is more worry about their fate. Uh, Global's Danielle Hamanjan uh, spoke with a couple of uh, family members who still have relatives being held hostage uh, and the concern they have and why they want the Israeli government to do more to prioritize the hostages. Some of the families were given information on their loved ones when others were released back in November. Since then, there has been nothing. Adding to the agony in some cases are Hamas videos, like the one released tonight, in which it claims that two hostages, both men, were killed by Israeli airstrikes. Israel calls it psychological warfare. Not everyone here believes the Israeli military's campaign in Gaza should end now. But they all believe Benjamin Netanyahu's time as prime minister should. They're here to mark 100 days since the attack since the hostages were taken. A hundred days without the Prime Minister taking responsibility. Among those who gathered outside the Israeli parliament demanding accountability were bereaved families. Maoz Inon knows all about grief. Both his parents were killed on October 7th. But don't expect him to talk about revenge. I'm willing to forgive the Hamas. It was much more difficult for me to forgive the Israeli government. Uh, Where most see a crisis, Maoz, the entrepreneur and peace activist, 
sees an opportunity. So only hope and a better future will you eliminate Hamas. He's heard it all from both Israeli and Palestinian friends, that he's naive, that his parents might have been killed by Israeli crossfire, not Hamas. That peace is impossible. I tell them, what does it matter? What does it matter? Why and what happened and who started it on October 7? I'm, I'm saying them, do you want a better future or do you want the cycle of war, the cycle of blood, of hate and fear that has been going on for a century now? Gil Dickman is no fan of Netanyahu, but believes the country needs him to eliminate Hamas, who murdered his aunt and who's still holding his cousin, Carmel Gat, hostage. I see it as a life and death conflict, not an Israeli, Israel-Gaza conflict. We believe in life, and the other side, a terror organization, believes in death. Gat was supposed to be released back in November, but the deal fell through. Those who did make it out say they saw the 39-year-old occupational therapist do yoga with the children to keep them strong. Yeah. With fewer hostages in captivity, her family now fears the worst. We know that there are crimes against humanity being committed right now on the hostages, both men and women, sexually assaulted, tortured. It's widely believed that Netanyahu's position in the long run is untenable. But for now, the priority is the war, which has the support of the majority of Israelis. Replacing Netanyahu will have to wait. That's Global Stand, Hamamchin in Israel. Uh, one of the groups that's been working with hostage families, as well as some of the, the victims and survivors of October 7th, is the Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel. So joining us to talk about, uh, you know, the mood in Israel, the concern about the fate of the hostages, uh, what the international community could be doing uh, to help things along. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Urit uh, Sulit-Ziano, Executive Director of the Association of Rape, Rape Crisis Centers in Israel. Urit, good to have you with us. Here, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so we passed the 100-day mark, and I know there, there's so much concern about those still being held, especially in light of what, what Hamas released yesterday. What's what's the latest that you can share with us? There is a horrible, horrific uh, concern every day. Uh, every day that we're counting makes us worry, and you know we're not worrying. Uh, there's a there's a, a huge re- reason for the worries. We worry that people will be killed, assassinated, tortured. We're worried that the women there in captivity are brutalized, are sexually abused, and are getting uh, injured, and nobody will, is taking care of them. I don't know if anybody could imagine this kind of situation uh, that happened in a modern, developed Western country like Israel. Nobody have ever dreamt that we will have this kind of situation. And the hardest thing for us also is the huge disbelief in the world that uh, that these things did not happen. You know, it, it's very, very hurting for us. You know, I work in the rape crisis centers for oh, 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 more than a decade, and every woman who works in rape crisis centers understands totally the, the issue of not believing a woman that she was raped. You know, we deal with that all over the world, not in Israel, also in Canada, also in Alberta, also in the university that uh, the manager of the rape crisis center in that university uh, 
said that she, nothing had happened in Israel and there was no sexual abuse and she does not believe. And, uh, and, and everyone who works with this issue understands how hard how hard it, it, it is to prove because you cannot see. But we did. There's so much evidence to what uh, happened in Israel. So everybody should acknowledge and understand and, uh, and support the issue, the woman. You know, it, it doesn't have no regard to politics. Mm-hmm. Women in Israel were raped, abused, sadistically brutalized, something that the history will never forget. Yeah, we're we're here in Alberta, actually, so I'm I'm well aware of the situation you refer to, the Rape Crisis Center at the University of Alberta, their executive director signing that letter denying that that women had been raped on on October 7th, and there's been so much uh, evidence, so much awful, horrific evidence that's come to light about what happened on that day. Uh, And also, I I guess, what's happened to the hostages and and women who have been held by Hamas. We're we're learning a lot more just about uh, how awful their situation was and the sexual abuse and assaults that occurred uh, in captivity as well. More is coming to light on that, too occurred and are still occurring. Of course, as a person who, uh, me, as a, the executive director of the Association of Rape Crisis Centers, I'm very delicate in talking about this issue because we don't want to to uh, to uh, penetrate, I'm sorry to use this word, into the what happened to these women into their lives. But there, there were uh, testimonies of uh, hostages who have returned. Not yeah. one and not two and not three. Uh, so first of all, we have to be very careful of course, not to talk about anyone personally, because it's a very hard issue and a very, very traumatic experience. But uh, but the the reality is horrific. You know, uh, just yesterday, just a, a few days ago, in, in, in one of the committees of the Knesset, one of the Knesset committees in Israel, a woman who has returned from captivity told a story. Told a story. I don't know if you heard it in Canada, but what she said, she's about 50 years old plus minus. And she said that uh, one of the young women that was with her in the same room, she went to the toilet and with a guard that they followed to to guard her while she's going to the toilet. And then when they returned back from the toilet, she saw on her face something bad, something not like was before. She asked her, what's going on with you? Are you okay? And the woman said, the young woman, yeah? They touched me, you know, and the and the woman that gave this testimony in the Israeli Parliament said, "You know, it's so I don't want to hear about it. It's so hard for me to hear about it." And then she told also that the guard even didn't let her hug this young woman. Now there are fifteen women in Israel that are the uh, fifteen Israeli women that are now in the hands of the Hamas. They're all young women between in, in, uh, over eighteen and they're mostly in their twenties. Young women, you know, they're obviously for sexual violence. And so imagine you were a parent of one of these young girls, young women. Imagine you were a mother or a father to think what's going on there day by day. And these Hamas, horrible, horrific terrorists, don't have any uh, humanitarian treatment. You know, you can take someone, even if you do this horrific thing of taking someone in captivity, it's it's uh, brutalizing raping, or I don't know what's going on there, is unthinkable, unthinkable, this, kind of, this, this catastrophe, it's unthinkable. 
Yeah, it was so cruel yesterday that, to put out this video of uh, this this young woman, one of the hostages, who's forced on video to to state that two of the other hostages had been killed. I mean, it feels like um, you know psychological warfare on on top of everything else. Um, so you know, I mean, I I know as as we pass the one hundred day, concern as we talked about earlier uh, is really growing, and you know, it feeling maybe like time is is running out on this, these hostages. So, what can be done at this point? You know, we're talking now, I'm in Israel and you're in Canada, and I think a lot can be done. In Israel, uh, my organization, and uh, also the citizens of Israel, we go and demonstrate, and we we help, we we have a project to help uh, the hostages, the families uh, have the right, but I think the most, uh, you know, it's a terrorist organization, and I'm not ex- an expert in sadistic terrorists. I don't have this expertise, but I think the most important thing and, and like people who are listening to your program can do is talk about it speak and 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 call the government to put pressure because uh, uh, to hold people in hostage is the uh, and uh, torture them and to sexually abuse them and brutalize them is something that should not uh, happen in 2024. You know, uh, we should be uh, our uh, humankind, mankind should progress. This thing should not happen, even if there are disputes. You know, even if there are disputes, these kind of things should not happen. And the world, if they don't help us to fight these horrible people, I always say what happened to us can also happen in Canada because extreme people, extreme Extreme Islamists are all over the world. You know, Israel has uh, this conflict, and I really hope this conflict will end and will ha- will reach peace. You know, I believe in peace, and uh, and I want peace, uh, and I want this uh, conflict to be that there will be a resolution to this conflict. And I'm telling to you also, personally, being a, a daughter of a survivor, my mother was a survivor of the Nazi regime. My mother was in Auschwitz. I grew in a house where I knew what is trauma. My mother, who was in Auschwitz as a younger girl, she, I saw all my life her trauma, although she married and she had a good life and she had us and the children. But I, the, the price she paid because of these sadistic Nazis, now again the Israeli society is paying again and humanity is paying again. We're part of humanity. And I, I'm so sad and so disappointed. You know, you know, my family has passed this horrible Holocaust. And again, we're passing in Israel a small, small-scale Holocaust, but it's, I call this a Holocaust. And people are, are, are choosing to, to, not to believe. Again, even if uh, people do not like the politics of Israel, okay, I understand that. But to see what happens to the woman, rape of women, uh, beheading people, cutting off breasts of a, li- a living woman, sh- shooting babies in their heads. These kind of things, hum- humanity should not accept these kind of things. And it's very, very sad to see many people not believing, sh- uh, just uh, just uh, uh, see- seeing everything through political eyes and not understanding that these are crimes against humanity. Today is the first day where Calgary's new single-use items bylaw is in effect. Now, this is separate from the federal government's single-use plastics ban, but I suppose where they kind of bump into each other. Now, the reason why grocery stores, for example, had to get rid of plastic shopping bags was a result of that federal law. 
So now the shift to paper bags and reusable cloth bags. So Calgary's bylaw now steps in to try to further incentivize uh, shoppers to, to bring their own bags. So there is going to be a minimum 15 cent surcharge for paper bags. That'll rise to 25 cents next year. Stores must charge a dollar for cloth reusable bags, and that'll rise to $2 next year. Now, there are some some requirements in terms of providing condiments, cutlery, those kinds of things. So joining us to talk about how this is all going to work, why we're doing this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Sharon Howland, uh, leader of program management uh, with Waste and Recycling Services at, at the City of Calgary. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much. Okay, so what is the intent of this this bylaw then, first of all? Oh, absolutely. The intent is about reducing waste. And really, that's about giving Calgarians the choice about whether or not they want to take a bag or foodware accessories instead of always having it shoved on you. So that's the really big difference about this bylaw. So uh, what we're specifying, I know you got into the fees, which is a really important component of this bylaw. But what we're trying to do is encourage waste re- reduction by giving Calgarians the choice to accept these items or not. So we'll uh, really good example I have, Rob, is when was the last time you, you know, picked up your takeout order and the bag was just jammed full of cutlery and condiments, ketchup packets, napkins, all sorts of things you didn't actually need because you were taking that takeout order home to eat it and you already have all those things at home and no one even asked you whether or not you needed them and now you've got all this stuff you're going to stuff it in your junk drawer and every time you open it up it's overflowing with uh you know utensils that sort of thing and we're really dialing it in with this bylaw to just ask businesses please ask your customers whether or not they actually need a bag and whether or not they actually need all that cutlery and condiments but I mean, isn't there incentive to do that? Because that all comes at a cost to the business. So if they can reduce their costs by not wasting those things on people who don't need them, there's already a built-in incentive to do that, isn't there? There is, especially for the foodware accessories. That's right. So if they're not just handing out uh, by default all of these foodware accessories, they're going to save money. That's very, very true. And that's one of the benefits that we heard from businesses when we talked to them about this bylaw. Um, and, and that's a really great benefit from them because, you know, it's just become a default practice. And they needed this bylaw to remind them that, you know what, you as a business, you do control your costs. And one way to do that is through simple actions like asking customers if they actually need something. Okay, so the, the asking requirement, so the onus is on the, the, the business or the person working in the business to ask, or is the onus on the customer to ask? Actually, it can go either way. So the on-request component of the bylaw for both bags and foodware accessories is can go either way. It can be a staff person asking you, Rob, do you need a bag with that today? Rob, do you need some co- uh, condiments with that, some ketchups? Or it can be you saying, actually, can I have a bag today? I know it's 15 cents, but I forgot my reusable one today. Okay, and so the items that this covers, so you mentioned cutlery, you mentioned condiments, um, that includes straws, napkins, like what else counts as an item here? Yep, so that's what foodware accessories are. There's two categories to the bylaw. There's the bags, which are new paper bags and new reusable bags. Uh, and then there's foodware accessories, and the foodware accessories are exactly that. It's all the bits and bobs that you get with your food order. It's the straw it's uh, the little creamer, it's the um, ketchup uh, uh, condiments, anything that isn't actually part of the order itself, right? So, uh, for instance, if you order a salad at Wendy's, people do that, 
Mm -hmm. Uh, An integral part of that salad is the dressing, right? You're not going to eat the salad without dressing, so they don't need to ask you whether or not you want dressing. Dressing is part of that recipe for that salad. But they do need to ask you, do you need napkins? Do you need a fork? All of that. So are we really going to be fining businesses for giving a napkin to someone or giving someone a a spoon with their their Frosty uh, at Wendy's? The city of Calgary never takes a penalty-first approach. We take an education-first approach. So we have been out there hitting the streets, visiting businesses, dropping off posters and other promotional material, meeting with managers at different restaurants, different retail stores to explain what the expectations are. If somebody reports into us through 311 that, you know what, it looks like this business isn't charging the fee or isn't aware of the buy request components, we're going to give them a shout and give, uh, go through the requirements, send them some resources. If we need to go out and have a, a site visit, we'll do that. We're all about gaining compliance. We do not want to penalize people. Okay, so help me understand the fee then, because you've laid out the premise uh, of shifting this onus or asking the question, and that can reduce waste when it comes to these other items. So why, yep. why not take that same approach to bags? Why then the, the mandated fee here? So what we've seen from our best practices scan across Uh, North America and also into Europe as well, is with bags, people need a financial incentive to nudge them in the right direction. So we have all seen it over the past five years or so. Bags have been disappearing from grocery stores. And most of us are in a really good habit already about bringing our own reusable bag or totes when we do our big weekly grocery shop. Uh, But where we're not as good at remembering it is at general retail and some of the other places like food service. And so in order to encourage us uh, to adopt these habits in these other environments that we're not yet well practiced at doing that, we have the fee because it just provides that little bit of a nudge, a little bit of a reminder that, oh, yeah, I don't want to pay 15 cents. I don't need a bag because I just I'm just getting a breakfast sandwich. I don't need a bag. Or uh, I brought my own bag. So why why would I give these people uh, 15 cents? You know, I, I can avoid the fee by just bringing my own bag or skipping the bag altogether. Yeah. But the paper bags do go in, in, in recycling, in blue bins, don't they? They're acceptable in recycling. But unfortunately, what we see is people don't recycle them, especially from food service. They just get crumpled up thrown out the window, unfortunately. They're an enormous litter issue. All of fast food packaging is, and this is the one that we can regulate, so we have implemented the bylaw. They're just uh, a litter issue, and they're filling our landfills. People don't recycle them, unfortunately. And the reusable bags, so that's going to be a dollar fee on those, uh, $2 minimum starting next year. But if if these are the alternatives then, so people can have these, keep these, bring them when they're shopping, uh, why would it be so such an affront to have businesses saying, hey, you know what, we want you using these, we're going to give you one? Uh, Because, of course, we're trying to prevent waste. You don't want a closet full of 200 reusable bags. We're trying to remind you, you're going to pay a fee if you forget your reusable bag. So bring one from home because all of us already have. All of us already have reusable bags at home. Uh, and if you need an extra one because you've forgotten, you do need to pay for it. It's a cost to the business, and it's an incentive to bring your own. Otherwise, you'll start using reusable bags as disposable bags, and we do not want that. Where's this money going? Because it, it, it doesn't or it can't, as I understand, go back to the city. So the business is keeping this then? You're right, Rob. 
it can't go back to the city because the city is not able to apply sales tax, and that's exactly what it would be. So the fee does remain with the businesses, and they can cover their costs for paper bags and reusable bags with that uh, money that they're collecting. Uh, So those fees, so it's 15 cents on paper bags. That goes up next year as well? Yep, to 25. Yep, and that's part of the best practices research we've seen is you do need that progressive increase uh, over the first couple of years of a policy like this to encourage that incentivization uh, to remember your own your own reusable bags or, again, to skip the bag because so often we actually don't even need a bag at all. Will that go up further or, or what's the plan on that? No, the best practices research that we've seen really is the, that progressive increase in the first two years, and that's what we have planned. Uh, and beyond that, we'll continue to reevaluate our strategy, but there's no planned increases at this time. So this is aimed, as you said at the outset, to, to, to reduce waste. So is that the, the manner in which we'll assess the success of, of this bylaw? Would, are we expecting then to see a reduction in waste over the next couple of years? And, and what if we don't? Yeah, absolutely. So we do waste composition studies. So that's uh, where we'll measure some of this to see, are we seeing a reduction in single-use items in uh, the garbage recycling and compost stream? Uh, We also do waste composition audits of litter uh, from uh, pathways and down by the river and that sort of thing. So it could give us an idea of how many of these materials are in, are, you know, in the environment being littered. Uh, we'll also be doing some surveying as well of businesses to understand how has this impacted them? Uh, do they need any additional support? That sort of thing. So we'll just evaluate over time, but it's definitely a single use items reduction strategy is something that we'll continue to work on over the coming years to assess are there Uh, additional or alternative uh, components that we need to add because there are different um, opportunities to reduce single-use items. Edmonton has some additional components. Vancouver has additional components. But this is where we felt Calgarians were ready to start. I do wonder, and I know some stores have been, you know, some restaurants have been leery about reusable cups where someone has to hand their cup to, to the staff or they have to fill the drink and hand it back. And there's maybe some sanitary issues. Is there any concern at all about, you know, me and my car and I'm handing my bag uh, that I brought from home that's been sitting in my closet. I'm handing it to the, the worker. They're putting the food in that. They're touching all these bags. Are, are, how do we address some of the, some of those issues? Alberta Health Services has actually provided some really great guidance uh, to businesses around handling reusables. And in the case of drive throughs for instance, what they recommend is very similar to what you do in the store itself. So when you order uh, at McDonald's, for instance, or another quick service restaurant, and you get your meal at the counter and you're going to eat in, they'll serve it to you on a tray, right? Well, it's the same thing uh, for drive through is they recommend just put the items on the tray, hand the tray out, and the uh, customer can just reach and grab their order off the tray. And then they sanitize the tray just like they do with the inside trays. So it's just applying something they do in-store to the drive through And at the drive through we know that that's actually one of the areas that will be the most significant habit change. And the big thing is there, most orders at the drive through are very, very small. They're a breakfast sandwich. They might be a burger. Uh, and you don't really need a bag in most cases. So the best option there, save 15 cents. Choose not to have a bag. Skip the stuff, as we say. And if you are making a bigger order, you can either choose to pay the 15 cents for a paper bag at the drive through or try to get in the habit of, you know, putting a thermal lunch bag or something in the car. If you're the type of person that's, you know, taking that order home and you want to keep it warm, that's a really, really great option. 
All right, more details on the bylaw at uh, calgary.ca, but it is in effect as of today. Sharon, appreciate the overview here. Thanks for making some time for us. Thanks, Rob. Have a great day. You too. All the best. There you go. Sharon Howland, uh, leader of program management, waste and recycling services of the city of Calgary. Some discouraging inflation data today from Statistics Canada. And it shows, you know, that maybe that the last bit of getting to the finish line of uh, the Bank of Canada's uh, inflation target is going to be the trickiest part. So inflation was actually up a bit in December, 3.4% year over year. So we got a policy announcement coming this month from the Bank of Canada, and we'll get a sense of maybe how hawkish they intend to be. In light of that, I think the fact that we seem to be getting closer to in, uh, the inflation target was at least a bit of good economic news because we haven't had much of that recently. The job numbers are really flat. I mean, I guess it's good that uh, unemployment hasn't taken off. Uh, GDP growth is basically flat, which, again, I mean, you know, could be a lot worse, but we do seem to be flirting with recession. But when you take a step back from all of that, I think there's some broader case for concern here. Like, are are we growing? Is our economy growing? Is our productivity growing? There's been a lot of weakness there. Maybe some of that's been obscured by uh, Canada's rapid uh, population growth. But if you look at productivity and GDP on a per capita basis, uh, it's not good. And it doesn't appear to, to be getting any better. So how worried should we be about that, and and how do we need to address that? It's a really interesting piece up at thehub.ca on some of these big questions. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is the author of that piece, Dr. Livio DiMatteo, professor of economics at Lakehead University. Uh, Livio, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Just let me get a thought from you on on the inflation numbers today. Um, You know, how, how worrying is it that we saw inflation tick back up? What do you think it means for the bank's decisions and, and the economy this year? Well, it is a bit worrisome that inflation has ticked back up, but it has been on a downward trend over the last year. And so um, the November numbers were 3.1%. Uh, December, you know, it ticked up to 34 So that brings 2023 as a whole probably at about 4.2%, 4.3%. And, you know, that's down substantially from, you know, 8 or 9% the year before. So, yeah. I mean, that's positive. Um, but the 3.4%, I mean, the uptick... Um, um, is a function of a number of the categories. I mean, there's like 600 you know, goods in the CPI index, and then it's divided up into categories. And uh, most of these increases have been particularly pronounced in uh, sort of groceries bought from uh, food stores, uh, rent, airfares. I mean, those categories have seen fairly large increases. I mean, airfares apparently were up like 30% annualized. Um, rent was up almost 8%. Groceries, 5%. Shelter, about 6%. So uh, gasoline was also up a little bit, but the only reason it seems to have had such an effect on the index uh, is that it was actually down in November. So prices actually started to go up uh, in December. So um, depending on what you consume uh, in your basket of goods, uh, some people are definitely going to be hit harder than others by the increase. Yeah, and I mean, it's pretty clear that, you know, the higher interest rates are weighing on the economy. And I mean, if the bank feels it's going to keep rates where they are a little bit longer, or they're even considering another possible increase, what are the implications uh, of that on the economy? Well, that's that's an interesting question. I mean, I I think the the consensus seems to be that the Bank of Canada is probably going to keep uh, interest rates where they are 
uh, probably for the first half of the year. And I think this uptick in December probably uh, confirms uh, that uh, predisposition on their part. Um, I guess the question is, what if inflation goes up even higher, which is not outside the realm of possibility? Uh, there could be international disruptions to, you know, commodities and energy prices again, uh, depending on, uh, you know, what happens in places like uh, the Middle East and the Red Sea and, and other parts of the world. I mean, these days it seems like you can't predict when uh, something else might come up to disrupt a global supply chain. So all things given, I, I think inflation will continue to come down, you know, barring some type of shock, which will propel it up, and that will delay the Bank of Canada's uh, uh, ability or, or desire to, to bring interest rates down. Yeah, and I mentioned the GDP numbers, right? And we've kind of been flirting with recession or, or basically at, at zero or flat growth. Um, but if you take a step back, and this gets to, to what you were writing about in your piece, uh, if we look at GDP on a per capita basis, what's the, what's the deeper story there? Well, this is a long-term story. I, I mean, Canada's uh, per capita GDP growth uh, has had uh, slow growth for a few decades now. And it's really concerning when you compare us, for example, to the United States. So, uh, I mean, if you go back to the early 1980s, after you adjusted for inflation and population and, uh, and U.S. constant dollars, uh, Canadian output per person was about 90% that of the United States. And that had been the product of, you know, decades of gradual increase. I mean, if you go back 100 years, we were at about 70% of used GDP. We sort of peaked at about 90%. And then we, we stopped. I mean, we've been growing slower than the U.S. now uh, since the 1980s in terms of per capita output. And we're back to about 70%. And, you know, if those growth rate con rates continue and we don't uh, up our productivity uh, within another couple of decades, uh, our per capita output will be about 60% that of the United States. So, I mean, they're our major trade partner. They're our, you know, our major economic competitor in many respects, and we aren't keeping up with them. And that is largely a result of declining productivity. I mean, the, the, the key cause, I mean, people are focusing a lot on population growth, and that certainly has been a recent factor. But this slowdown has been going on for much longer than the recent upsurge in immigration. It's only made it more pronounced. Uh, the real culprit is that we also do not invest in machinery, plant, and equipment, uh, you know, capital spending uh, in the same way as the Americans do on a per capita basis. And so we probably need to up our game there. So what, what, where does this weakness stem from, in your view? Well, uh, there's never any one cause for weakness. I mean, yeah. part of it is a failure to uh, to invest in, in, in capital stock. Then even if you do invest, um, sometimes it's important to invest in those areas of the economy where you have what is referred to as a comparative advantage. And in that case, it tends to be the natural resource sector in Canada. I mean, we're, we're very good in doing other things also, but we've always had an advantage in resource products, and we have been less willing uh, to, to invest in those. We don't spend as much on R&D uh, as the United States. We probably spend, per ca uh, in terms of as a share of our GDP, about half uh, what the U.S. spends. And we're almost at the bottom of the G7 countries in terms of what we spend on, on research and development. Uh, 
We also have an economy that's uh, not very competitive. And, I mean, we've always had this tendency to have a lot of monopolies and oligopolies. And that used to be justified, you know, decades ago by the fact that we were a small economy and the market wasn't large enough. And so, you know, we would have only two railroads or two airlines. But, you know, over the last 30 years, our population has doubled. There's uh, 40 million people. Uh, in Canada now, and for some reason we still don't seem to have a lot of competition. Whether it's uh, you know air transportation, the telecoms, uh, grocery retail chains, and so I think that's a structural problem in that we just don't have a lot of competition. Which of course, that type of competition would also probably spur uh, a drive to invest in more capital stock. And then you know most recently, the last decade has not been a very um, what I would call ideal state for Canadian federalism. I, I mean, mm-hmm. federalism is supposed to be a system of government in which uh, the units are both cooperative and competitive, and you know you satisfy regional preferences by having you know your own programs, etc. But you also cooperate, and there hasn't been a lot of that uh, over the last decade. So you know, even if you look at the, the current situation, the federal government uh, to basically address an aging workforce and labor shortage has uh, opened up immigration. Uh, Health and education uh, is provided by the provinces, and basically they can't seem to keep up. Housing is largely in the municipal area, and they don't seem to be moving very quickly either. There doesn't seem to be a lot of coordination. Uh, It's basically letting in uh, a larger population is good for the economy in the long run in terms of addressing the labor shortage and our aging demographics, but no one really gave much thought about how to accommodate it. Uh, I guess they just simply assumed that the solutions would, you know, descend from the heavens or yeah. something, and that hasn't, it hasn't quite happened. I mean, there needed to be other investments and other coordination between the tiers of government, and that has not occurred. Well, maybe that's an important lesson we're learning here, that you certainly don't want a shrinking population or stagnant population growth with an aging population. That's not good for productivity. Uh, but simply, you know, opening those those doors, it, it's not an automatic path then to, you know, higher rates of growth or, or higher productivity. No, no, it's not. Um, it's not a panacea. I mean, it's uh, you have to do other things. Uh, I mean, there. You know, the strategy to to deal with the labor shortage and an aging population is an important one. Our birth rate is quite low. And if we we don't have more immigration, it's going to be more and more difficult uh, to provide goods and services with an aging workforce, as as well as provide the tax base for, you know, health care and the other services an aging population are going to need. Uh, But at the same time, you do have to invest in, you know, residential housing stock. Uh, Firms have to invest in, in capital stock. And, you know, if the economy isn't as competitive internally uh, because markets are, you know, not open to as much competition, there's probably a lot less incentive to to, to invest. So what could be done to to start to address all of this? What what, what would your recommendations be? Well, in a sense, they are starting. They just started a little late. (laughs) Usually it's nice to sort of anticipate the problems before they become apparent. So they are trying to deal with, you know, uh, the situation in healthcare, for example, uh, by increasing the resources, you know, training more physicians and nurses and dealing with the labor shortage there. Uh, R&D, uh, universities uh, basically have been uh, cut loose for, so for some odd reason. 
uh, in the Ontario case, which is probably the most uh, dire, uh, tuition was uh, cut four years ago and frozen at uh, the levels of about four years ago. The government grant hasn't increased. Universities were told to become more entrepreneurial, and they did. They basically uh, recruited international students because of the, the demographics of the Canadian student market. And now it's, well, now you have too many international students, but there, there's, there, there, it's a no-win situation. You know, you're not allowed to raise tuition. Uh, the government grant isn't going to be increased. Uh, you're now being told that you've let in too many international students. And on top of it, uh, you're told you're supposed to, you know, find entrepreneurial and innovative things for the economy. I mean, you, you need to support your research and development sector if you're expecting solutions from it. And uh, that's happening across the country, but it's particularly pronounced in Ontario, which you know, accounts for 40% of the country's population. So that's another thing. And more competition. I mean, maybe we should, we should be looking at uh, uh, other airlines coming into the Canadian market and sort of allowing them to compete with our airlines uh, more up front. And that might be a factor in reducing transportation costs. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, your piece is mentioned. It's up at thehub.ca. Livio, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate this. My pleasure, Rob. Have a great afternoon. You too. All the best. Uh, that is Livio DiMatteo, professor of economics, Lakehead University. Uh, his piece uh, today for The Hub on how Canada's economic future is looking somewhat grim, especially compared to the United States, that if these trends continue... In a quarter of a century, Canada's per capita GDP could be as low as 60%, that of the U.S. Uh, so things got to change, clearly. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.